If a million dollars suddenly fell into your lap, what would you do with it? Perhaps pay off that debt. Perhaps fix the broken things around the house. Maybe replace the old car. Splurge on a dream trip. Our passage this morning may give you some ideas. We are walking through the book of Acts this year. We started at the beginning with the ascension of Jesus and the call to be Christ's witnesses here, there, and everywhere. And the gospel of redemption that that considers when good people happen to bad things, when redeemed people apply the gospel in word and deed to every aspect of life and existence. And then Acts continues with that 10-day period in between the ascent of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit. And in their waiting, the disciples choose to commune with God in prayer. And in considering a new apostle to replace Judas, they neither glamorize the good old days nor dwell on past failures, but they and so we as the church are moving constantly forward. And then Acts 2 gives us the great account of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells in every believer as it is the case now. At that point in time, there is the dramatic demonstration of the speaking of tongues that we would know that we are to proclaim the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the church and world are transformed when we walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, open to what only God can do. We saw then the early church receiving and giving grace, receiving grace as they shared together in the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer from which burst forth this generosity and the wise stewarding of resources. Acts 3 then recounts the first miracle that the apostles do in Jesus' name, healing the beggar at the beautiful gate. And then there's the second sermon by Peter that focused on Jesus and confronts sin, appeals for repentance, and gives the wonderful reasons for us to repent, that we might be forgiven, to be refreshed by the one who comes for us. And you think, what could possibly be wrong with such a good news message? And yet we saw last week in Acts 4 the power play by the religious leaders and their attempt to intimidate Peter and John But the apostles showed grace under fire with a bold proclamation of Christ. Indeed, we minister the gospel in Jesus' name for God's glory. And we rejoice in God's perfect providence, knowing that even threats, intimidation, pressure from the world is under God's sovereign control in order that his grace might be on display. And so next, we see grace on display in the work of the church at the end of Acts chapter 4, and then a connecting and contrasting, perhaps, account at the beginning of chapter 5, that we might see any of it and hear it, that we might put it to practice. Let's first go to God in prayer. Our Lord God, again, we come and have this wonderful opportunity to hear you speak to us by your word, accompanied by your Holy Spirit. And so that would be our prayer, that your spirit would come and powerfully bear witness to the reading and then the preaching of your word. Transform us in real ways 
To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, at the end of Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, when we see the church at work in these wonderful ways, and then chapter 5 that is a troubling event that stands in contrast. Listen to God's word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Before we get to that, <laughs> the passage begins with an astounding statement. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, if you're looking at, I think, any other translation but the NIV, it says they were one in heart and soul. The word that's translated there, soul or mind, is the word psyche. Of course, we get psychology, but also psyche. And when you think about your psyche, you tend to think about your mind. And so there's uh, an appropriateness to that word, but it's more than just that. The church was one in heart, emotionally bound together. And they were one in psyche, certainly in the thinking, having the same theology, but a oneness that drives even deeper than just an agreed-upon theology. The church was experiencing the unity that Jesus prayed for in the great priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus prayed this. 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. As we read this, it makes us ask the question, why isn't the church today experiencing that kind of unity? Now, some would propose certain things necessary to get back to such unity, that we need greater emphasis on Bible study and biblical literacy. Others would say, it's because we need more prayer. We should have more prayer meetings. Others would say, we simply need revival. And others would say, we need a a greater kingdom focus, a larger sense of what the Bible teaches. We need passion for mission and for reaching the lost. That's the answer. And of course, all those have a judgmentalism to them that you think you have the answer and you're doing it better than others. The verse is simply descriptive of a reality that existed in the church. All the believers were one in heart and soul. And the reason that they were is because God made it so. The arrival of the Holy Spirit and the perfect providence of the events so that the church simply was one in heart and soul. It's a divinely accomplished reality and there is no program, no ministry initiative that can manufacture this. In fact, it's arrogant to think that any one thing or any one focus area will accomplish or move to that kind of unity. Jesus had prayed that the unity of the church would be accomplished by God in order to let the world see the oneness of the Godhead, to see that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, to see the oneness of the Godhead lived out in the unity of the church, and that happened. Now, with that, one of the things that's always important to talk about is that when we talk about unity, we're not talking about conformity. It's not talking about everyone being the same and doing it the exact same way. Unity is much more profound than that. It means to be one in heart and soul. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's a God-produced unity. Now, the means of grace are certainly key. Studying God's word, praying and praying together, worshiping together and coming to the Lord's table a passion for the lost, and a gospel ministry that seeks to apply the redemption of Christ to every aspect of life and existence. But it's arrogance that would say we have the answer, that our one thing is the thing, and everyone must care about the one thing that I care about. Unity, not conformity. And with that is the good news that there is a unity that exists in the global church. The strength that's found in Reformed Presbyterians maybe covers weaknesses that exist in other branches. But the weakness of Reformed Presbyterians, and we have plenty of them, are covered by the strengths of other branches. Certainly every Christian and each local church body can grow and mature. But the success of the church's ministry is not dependent on any one of us, 
or on one initiative, but God himself produces the fruit. But what we have here is this beautiful descriptive of an almost Eden-like reality in the days of the early church. And it's a glimpse of what will be the eternal reality in the consummation of Christ's kingdom. We are now working towards that eternal reality. And we celebrate whenever we get glimpses of it. The unity of the church was expressed in the work described in the rest of verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. That is a miraculous generosity. Now, when you think about it, any genuine generosity is miraculous. By our nature, we're committed to ourselves, right? We're self-centered, self-motivated. We're out for ourselves. Now, people may be polite about it, even realize that to get things done, you need other people. Good wisdom and good management says that it's good to make people happy. But genuine generosity, sharing possessions with another person, not for what you get out of it, but genuine generosity is outworking of God's grace working in us. Genuine generosity is the outworking of God's grace working in us. As we recognize that God has given to us what we don't deserve. God was under no obligation to do anything for us. Everything that we have is his gracious gift to us. We give graciously as those who have received grace. The tithes that we give are a way of expressing that it all belongs to God. We share what we have received as a statement that all of our possessions are not really our own, but we are simply stewards of whatever God has chosen to give to us. Christ has come into our lives, and we are different as a result. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for God. Right now, down in Pittsburgh, and I was able to be there Friday night and most of the day yesterday, is the CCO Jubilee Conference. It's talking about how God is sovereign over every square inch. And part of uh, the Jubilee uh, celebration uh, was great having Lecrae uh, there as a speaker on Friday night. He was fabulous. And one of the things he said on Friday night is this Love God, love people, and do what you love. Love God, love people, and do what you love. And that's not it. Love God, love people, and do what you love. Verse 33 also describes the work and wonder that the church experienced. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. It's a great way to describe what was happening. And wouldn't it be great for this to be a description of the church today? We can't manufacture this, but the reality does exist. Much grace is upon us. Do you need to tell the stories to each other of much grace that is upon you? Just to get here this morning, how much grace had to be upon us to get here and to be here and to be present even in this moment when by our nature we are consumed with anything but the worship of God, but we are here because of much grace. We want to minister with great power. 
and to have it described that much grace is upon the church. But the genuineness of this would also mean that we would want the first sentence of verse 34 to be true as well. There were no needy persons among them. We want to be one in heart, have fellowship and an emotional bond together, to experience oneness together. We want to be one in mind and soul, to have doctrinal fidelity, right beliefs, good knowledge of God's word, and good evangelization to others. But do we also want to have no needy persons among us to make sure that we are providing fully for the needs of others? Within the early church, there were no needy persons. They were providing for each other, even to the extent that people were selling their lands and houses and then simply putting the money at the apostles' feet for them to distribute wherever there was a need. He said, here's an offering, no strings attached, not designated, not you have to do what I want you to do with it. Here is an offering, go take care of people and the needs that you are aware of, that I might not be aware of. And then two specific offerings are shown to illustrate the point. First, in verses 36 and 37, we're told this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is the first time we hear about Barnabas, but certainly not the last. We will hear more about Barnabas in the chapters to come. This is the same Barnabas who traveled with and ministered with the apostle Paul. He's given a new name. He's no longer Joseph, but Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The people called him the encourager because of his actions. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce then describes the following scene so well. He writes, unfortunately, as it was soon to turn out, sitting over on the side of the church somewhere, there were two people who noticed what was going on and who wanted to be acclaimed like Barnabas. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. They thought, I wish people were praising us like that. Look at the attention Barnabas is getting. He sold his field and gave them money. They named him son of encouragement. How marvelous it would be to be thought of like that by our friends. So they decided to sell their piece of property and do the same thing. And sadly, as we read the story, we find that they were not at all like Barnabas. Outwardly, they seemed to be, but inwardly, they were of quite a different character. Barnabas was giving his goods out of thanksgiving to God and concern for God's people. He was honest about it. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be treated the way Barnabas was treated, but they were not honest. They sold the property, looked at the money, saw how nice it was, and then kept some back for themselves while giving the rest, pretending to give it all. Maybe they had intended to give it all at first, But the more they looked at it, the more they loved it. And so even if it had not been in their hearts before, the evil of their hypocrisy was hatched. They thought, nobody knows how much we got for the sale of this property, and we certainly have enough expenses today. Why don't we just keep part of it? Nobody will know. Let's keep part and give the rest. And the people will say, they are just like Barnabas. There is no perfect church not even the church of the apostles. 
In verse 32, we had read, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions as his own, but shared everything they had. And we think, ah, the perfect church. But even this church had Ananias and Sapphira in it. Someone once told Charles Spurgeon that they were leaving his church because they were going to find a perfect church. And Spurgeon, who had a great deal of wit and perhaps a forthrightness that's more than is what people dare today, said, well, when you find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Westminster PCA in Butler is not a perfect church. And some people have discovered that. I have let them down. The elders have let them down. The ministry didn't move fast enough in something they wanted and they have left searching for another church. There is no perfect church. We simply need to pray that God will help us to do better, to protect us from the evil one, and to keep us faithful to himself together. And we can certainly pray that for all congregations. Now, Peter's reply to Ananias in verses 3 through 5 gives three important concerns. First is the right of ownership. Now, this isn't what Peter says first, and I only mention it first, perhaps because it's the least important, but the one that probably first comes to mind. Peter said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Peter's repudiating communism, even a sanctified Christian communism. The Bible does not prescribe or require that we give all our possessions to the church. Private property has always been a right. In fact, the Eighth Commandment only makes sense if we have private property. The commandment says, you shall not steal. Well, you can't steal unless it belongs to somebody else because it's private property. The problem was not that Ananias and Sapphira did not give everything. The problem was their hypocrisy and lying about it. Falsehood destroys fellowship. Falsehood destroys fellowship. And so after the right of ownership, Peter then talks about the role of Satan. And this is actually the first thing that Peter mentions. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You know, whenever the church is thriving, Satan will look to attack. If we just go through the motions and don't really try anything, if we just sort of go through the motions, Satan will generally leave us alone. But I think Westminster historically and even now, when we genuinely attempt to minister the gospel effectively, solid teaching and preaching and God-honoring worship, strong missions, outreach initiatives to minister to the real needs of real people, Satan will attack the fellowship. And with that, it's important to remember Satan is stronger than we are. But here's the good news. He is infinitely weaker than God is. James 4 Verse 7 says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We cannot skip the first part and just simply try to resist the devil on our own. We must first submit ourselves to God, and then, by God working in us, we resist the devil, and he is forced to flee. So after talking about the role of Satan and the right of ownership, the third point is perhaps the most important. 
sin's offense to God. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. We live in a world that does not take sin seriously. In fact, our world celebrates sin and tells others to lighten up about morality. All humans are made in God's image, and all sin dehumanizes us. Sin makes us more like animals than humans. I was greatly encouraged by a Christian speaker in my teenage years raging with hormones. I heard a speaker say, having sex isn't the big deal. My dog can have sex. Having sex in the covenant of marriage is the thing that God has designed for us. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. Taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war with and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal hellishness. The last part of the account, having Sapphira come in and lie separately, drives home the point. Verse 2 had told us that Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, kept back part of the money. And this shows us that there is really no room for the blame game. Sapphira can't come in and say, well, it wasn't my idea, it was his idea, I just went along with it. We are, if we're honest, masters at blame shifting. Sometimes we blame our environment. Well, it's how my parents raised me. It's because I grew up in a particular neighborhood. It's because certain people didn't treat me properly. That's why I do what I do. Sometimes we make it genetic. Well, I'm just made like this. There's really nothing I can do about it. Well, it's that old Irish temper. It's because I'm German. It's, you know, it's just the way Italians are. With excuses we make for ourselves, but of course disallow for others. I love the story about the little boy who came to his mother and said, why is it that every time I do something wrong, it's because I'm a bad boy, but when you do something wrong, it's because of your nerves. (laughs) You cannot blame sin on your nerves, your ethnicity, your neighborhood, or your parents. You cannot blame sin on your job, your boss, your kids, or your stress. God is sovereign over our environment, over our genetics, and over our situation. Sin is sin. Now, having said all that, it's important to say this. Peter does not suggest that Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers who went to hell for all eternity. They did not go to hell because they sinned. Their temporal punishment is certainly extreme, but their eternal reward is secure in Christ. This extreme punishment reminds us of the Old Testament accounts of Nadab and Abihu who were 
offering improper fire upon God's altar and then struck dead. And we remember uh, Uzzah who reached out to touch the Ark of the Covenant to steady it on the cart when it went over some uneven road and he was struck dead. These were believers who seemed to be struck dead for what we might call a trivial offense. The severity of the punishment came at an important time of new beginnings for God's people. God always cares about the purity of his people and his holiness, but especially at the dawn of a new era. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, this was the beginning of the church. The last verse of our passage, verse 11, drives home this point, that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. In fact, you may want to underline and circle the word church right there because it's the first time the Bible uses this term to describe the New Testament covenant fellowship of believers. This is where we're first called, the church. Earlier in the service, we looked at Psalm 72 and the prayer for the prosperity of the king because the good king does good things with that prosperity. He takes the gifts and the tributes that are brought to him. He takes the economic prosperity. And what does he do with it? He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. And the prayer asks that the king would live long, that gold would be brought to him because of what the king does so well with that wealth. Jesus is the good and perfect king. Jesus lives and reigns forever and ever. The church of Jesus Christ is building the kingdom of Jesus Christ where there are to be no needy people as he rescues his elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I come back to the question again, what would you do if a million dollars suddenly fell into your lap? There is value to paying off debt. But what if you simply took that million dollars and then just gave it right to Jesus? Laying it at the feet of the apostolic church to use in order to provide for those who are in need. Can I tell you some good news? We are one in heart and soul because our heart and soul have redeemed, been redeemed by the same Jesus. We are one in heart and soul because we are all being transformed by the same Jesus. And so may we be one in heart as a result of God's rich grace that binds us together. May we be one in soul as a result of God's rich grace, endlessly transforming us. And may we be one in shared ministry to the church and the world, building Christ's kingdom. And may that truth set us free. Amen.